You're listening to the Pocket Hole Podcast with your host, PDF Pocket Hole. We're broadcasting to you today from Michael Collins Chinese Takeaway Memorial Center. That's right, Ireland's first memorial center slash Chinese takeaway combo. If the Irish War of Independence gets you hungry as a hypocritical Winston, then you should try the Michael Collins inspired curry sauce. Welcome to the Pocket Hole Podcast. Soundwaves, pocket thoughts in the brains of the human population. Welcome to the Pocket Hole Podcast. Your whole inhalation of good vibrations and information. I'm going to tell you which drug is most potent with music. The drug that goes best with the listening of music. And to do so, I need to tell you a story. The year is 2058. In the world of tomorrow, the whole global warming thing has been solved, so everyone is still alive and dandy. In fact, the global flora and fauna is flourishing and there hasn't been a major war in over 22 years. Technology is totally unrecognizable from what it was 50 years ago. The Luddites smashed up Apple HQ with blunt weapons. Somehow we evaded what seemed to be an inevitable robotic uprising. In this world of 2058, A teenage girl is lying on her bed, wearing a pair of Ugg boots and a t-shirt detailing tour dates from the hologram of XXX Tentacion. She's lying on her bed on her stomach with her legs kicking the air, reading a magazine. She has posters of One Direction and Justin Bieber on the wall, and she just bought a pair of AirPods online so she can listen to a Lana Del Rey album the way it was intended to be listened to. She's reading a magazine about the hits from 2020. She sighs and says, Ah, I was born in the wrong generation. Why would a girl in 2058 be reminiscing about 2020? Well, it's all because of a simple chemical reaction that causes the drug known as nostalgia. Ladies and gentlemen, do not do nostalgia. You will go crazy. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. It's, it's more powerful than cocaine, probably. That's based on nothing but just... It's just something I made up just there on the spot. But nostalgia is powerful. Nostalgia is a sentimentality for the past. But it's all rooted in the fact that memory is biased. So nostalgia isn't rational. Nostalgia isn't... It's not correct. It's, it's a sentimentality, but it's, it's through a distorted lens. The things that you remember the most are the things that you want to think about. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Why would we think about something unless we wanted to? We don't think about things that we don't want to. And if you're saying to yourself, Well, pocket hole, I always think about the time I called my teacher Mammy by accident. Yeah, okay, we all did embarrassing stuff. We all called the teacher Mammy at one point. But... You still want to think about that. Like when you're lying awake at night thinking about things that you should have said 10 years ago, you do want to think about that, even though it's painful. The main reason that we think about shit that is cringy is because we're trying to learn from it. If, if you're cringing at your past, then that means that you've grown as a person. 
our brain kind of works in a fucked up way where it makes us want to remember things that are bad so that we can learn from them and not do them again which is fair enough but let's talk about the good stuff let's talk about the fact that nostalgia makes you think about things but in a really good way in a way that just makes you think oh yeah those were the times because nostalgia is incredibly biased when you're thinking about let's say music when you were a teenager when you were listening to music as a teenager that's your most that's the time where you're most vulnerable to sound that that's the time where you get into music the most and there's a period between like 15 years old and 23 years old peak music listening time and that's why you get people saying oh the the music in the 80s was much better we had keyboards and guitars it's because that point in your life you just attach to music you're you're the most creative that you probably will be ever in your life so in terms of selective memory it's pretty convenient that when we're remembering this time when we were so attached to music in the future when we're remembering it we're also having a, a biased recollection of it and our memory can't quite process everything that was happening at that time so when you're remembering this music that was great when you were 16 you're you're not thinking about school and how shit life was and this girl you fancied and she didn't like you back and drinking naggins in your room alone and crying you're not really thinking about that stuff because your brain just can't process this huge amount of background information and not only that but you also can't remember exactly how you felt at the time it's kind of like pain you, you can't remember pain you can remember that pain is bad and you can remember that you don't like it but you can't actually remember the physical feeling of pain so this is a large reason why when you when you're nostalgic about something that you seem to conveniently forget all the terrible terrible things that were happening to you because you just can't put yourself in that exact mindset and you just selectively remember all the good stuff and that makes you think hey I'm feel I have all these background pressures and stresses right now I didn't have that back then all I cared about was getting my homework done and going out with friends on the weekend yeah those were simpler times that age man I, I could do anything that I wanted I was so stressed about everything now is when the real shit's happening essentially no matter what way you look at it the present is always the hardest and most realistic moment and the past is always simple and easy and carefree and you're always younger in the past and you always had so much ahead of you it's all bullshit you're lying to yourself you're lying and <sighs> now <laughs> Okay, so I'm being like incredibly negative about this and that's just because in my personal experience the past was shit and I can't quite remember it. I just remember that it was shit. For a lot of people, childhood actually was a lot better than their current life. It's all about your own perspective of your own unique situation. But regardless of reality, regardless of whether the past was actually better or not, nostalgia isn't to be trusted. So what I'm saying is, as emotionally and generally irrational animals that we are, the power of nostalgia, it's ever-present. It can't be ignored. Memory and nostalgia are both biased and selective, as I said a million times already. 
But they're not both the same thing, memory and nostalgia. Nostalgia needs to be triggered. Nostalgia is something that kicks in. You don't just become nostalgic for no reason. There needs to be an activating event that reminds you of something from your past. The strongest senses to evoke nostalgia are smell, touch and sound. Because these senses are the first to pass through the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain. And any feeling or any brain pattern that goes through the emotional center of the brain, the amygdala, these are always the ones that fuck you up the most. These are the most powerful. Because the amygdala is known as the lizard brain. And they say that because it's pure emotion. There's no rationality in that part of the brain. It's, it's where your fight or flight comes in. Animal instinct, basically. And this is where nostalgia resides. Memory is in a different part of the brain. Nostalgia, pure emotion. And emotion is not fact. Emotion is just... It's hard to ignore emotion. A lot of people confuse emotion with reality. Some people can be incredibly angry about certain things or incredibly passionate. This is why we do stupid things for love. Because emotion makes you feel so much that what you're feeling right now is the truth. Like, I love this person so much. This person is the best. I want to marry this person. I'm going to move to a different country for this person. And you think that this is rational and that this is the smart thing to do because you're so emotional about it. And that's the trick with emotion. It really makes you think that it's true. But then you move country to the other person and then you're like, oh shit, now I don't have a job and I had loads of stuff that I had to do back in that old country. Bollocks, why did I move here? That was such a stupid idea. It's because of emotion. It's so common that we almost don't even question the importance of nostalgia. Because we all know what it is. You know, everyone knows what it is. Everyone has felt it. But at one stage, people didn't know what that was. The word nostalgia didn't exist at one point. It had to be discovered. And at its very earliest stages of discovery in the 1600s, it was considered a deadly disease. <laughs> Which I think is very funny. It was first acknowledged by the French. don't think they are particularly nostalgic. But they're the first ones to figure it out. And it's because of the Swiss. It's the Swiss's fault. Swiss mercenaries in France and Italy began pining desperately for their mountainous landscapes back in their homeland of Switzerland. So a lot of Swiss people were uh, joining the war efforts in the 1600s. They moved to France and Italy. So the French mercenaries knew that these Swiss lads were getting sick and they kept on deserting. Swiss people just kept leaving. They would go, leave their home, bon voyage, I'm going to La France, and then they uh, then they go straight back home. And there was no word, or there was no explanation for why this was happening, particularly to Swiss people. And it became known as mal de Suisse, which means like sickness of the Swiss. And the symptoms included fainting, high fever, indigestion, stomach pain and death <laughs> Pe people are thinking nostalgia is a disease and they think it's leading to death at this point so the french are looking for causes of why all these swiss people are getting sick they're getting fevers they came to the conclusion that the swiss mercenaries were being affected due to singing swiss songs so the swiss would sing these melodies and uh, you know traditional melodies and they would miss their home so much 
that their bodies would start to fail them. So they would be singing these songs because they're already homesick, but then singing the songs would just remind them of back home and basically the French banned them from singing these songs. They were forbidden and they would be severely punished if anyone was caught singing these traditional Swiss songs. Yeah, the Swiss were actually becoming ill. They were being whacked, like they were getting killed by the enemy because their their, their head wasn't in the game because a piece of music had made them nostalgic. And that's what I want to get to here. In the early 1800s, this is like 200 years later, they still don't know what nostalgia is and medical experts are looking for the source of it. And of course, they're thinking, okay, it has to be something to do with music. What, what is it about this music that's making these people go crazy? And they were convinced that there was a nostalgia bone somewhere in the body and that <laughs> singing songs would somehow vibrate this nostalgia bone in a way that would make the rest of their body feel sick. Man, it's, we are so lucky with what we know these days. Imagine if, like, they're so far away from the answer. It wasn't until around 1850, 50 years later, that they discovered that nostalgia is part of a pathological process. And then interest in the subject just vanished. They figured out that it was a pathological process and then they just stopped researching it. Like, okay, it's good enough. But much like a lot of technological and medical advancements, it wasn't until World War I and II where it was actually researched properly and we found the definitive answer. Because American soldiers kept abandoning the war in World War One and Two, uh, for the same reason, because of nostalgia. I'm saying all this fucking this big history lesson to just emphasize how powerful this thing is. In relation to art and music, romanticism is the visual equivalent of nostalgia a hugely influential movement that is arguably one of the most emotive forms of art. The dreamlike aesthetic of romanticism can make you feel nostalgic about things you've never experienced. And this isn't just painting I'm talking about. The Smiths, The Cure, My Bloody Valentine, Kanye West, Drake, specifically 80s music, but music is all about romanticism. Keyboards especially, huge romantic instrument. Everything about pop music is romantic. You can't escape it. Ever since lyrics were being sung, they were about love. Even when they were about heartbreak, they were still about love. And that's what pop music is. It's just, it's about singing songs about love and shit and romance. And even going through the years as genres start to get out of control, you can still find grunge bands romanticizing depression, rappers romanticizing success, and electronic artists romanticizing drugs. Music is drenched in romanticism, and romanticism comes straight from nostalgia, and nostalgia comes straight from emotion. And this is something I'll talk about a lot, but emotion is the absolute cornerstone of music. I mean, it's possible to make music without emotion being a central part of it. For example, my songs aren't exactly emotional, but the reason most pop music is about love and why the Beatles have something like 54 songs that have love in the title 
is because it's the most common human experience to feel emotion. But as I said earlier, it's also the thing that makes you irrational and stupid and just because you feel emotional about something, you think it's true and you get attached to it. Musicians have known this for a long, long time. Even as far back as the Swiss singing those songs about home, we've known that if your music is emotional and if it's about love and if it makes you think about home or about your sweetheart, then you're going to be attached to that song because it reminds you of that emotion. So then you take that feeling and then you put nostalgia in the mix by being nostalgic about this thing that made you emotional and blah 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 blah. It's a drug. That's what I'm trying to say. You get fucked up on this shit. You get fucked up on emotion. So one of two things is happening to you right now. Either you're saying to yourself, oh yeah, I'm a nostalgic baby. Or you're saying to yourself, well, no, that, that's bullshit. I don't feel nostalgic. I feel nothing. My heart is a stone. Let, let's do a little nostalgia experiment. I'm going to play a couple sounds and you decide for yourself if these simple sounds, these simple bits of music make you nostalgic. Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes. Dooby-dooby-doo, where are you? We got some work to do now. doesn't matter if you were alive when the sound was made, you can hear a clip from Willy Wonka and be nostalgic about it, even if you've heard it for the first time in 2006. Being nostalgic about something doesn't mean you were there when it was created. And if you hear the Windows XP startup sound, and you get a little warm feeling inside, that's nostalgia. It's nothing to do with the actual music. That music, that little Windows XP sound isn't so good that it makes you feel warm every time you hear it, you know? And on a similar note, you know the TV show Friends? The theme song is shit. That theme song is a big stinking pile of doo-doo. And if me saying that makes you kind of angry or uncomfortable because I slagged off the Friends theme tune, then it just proves my point. 
because the song I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts, it's alright, it's not exceptionally good, but it represents more than just purely its musical qualities. If you're a fan of the show Friends, or if you enjoyed that show, that music now represents the show, and probably represents a certain period of your life. So if someone says that it's a big stinging pile of doo-doo, then you don't take offence on behalf of the music. You feel like someone has criticised a part of you and a part of your past. Because, like, that, that piece of music is... It's connected to you. My point is that this happens when someone slags your favourite band. For example, I love Fall Out Boy from the years like 2004 to 2008, something like that. Because I just liked it when it came out. And I understand that it's cringy and it's bad. But back then, pop punk was pretty popular. And I listen to it in a whole different way now. But if someone said to me that I have bad taste in music because I like Fall Out Boy from the early years, I would feel bad because that's a personal part of me. Even though I can admit that it's not great, but you know what I mean? This is the whole reason why you find people in their 30s, 40s, or 50s who say music was better in their time. These people see new music as a threat. People who say music used to be better, they, they feel like this new music is replacing the music that they like. And no one wants the things that they're nostalgic about to be forgotten or regarded as obsolete or, you know, suddenly the, the tides have changed and suddenly your favourite band isn't actually cool anymore. You know, pe people don't like that. You also get the same people saying things like, oh, oh, I bet you don't even know who the Bee Gees are. Or, oh, you're probably too young to remember this. You put a part of yourself into the music you like and for society as a whole to move on to new things, it can feel like you're being left in the dust if you're still attached to that thing. For example, I was listening to the radio a couple days ago. It was a sports show, and the presenter said to their co-host, Oh, you probably don't even remember back in 2006 when such and such scored this goal. And it's just a case of, you know, I, I want to feel better than you because I'm attached to this moment, and this moment makes me excited. When that guy scored that goal like I watch that back on YouTube and I oh it just makes me feel happy and excited and they just want to get in there before the person says oh you're just old like why don't you just get get with the times old man when someone says oh I bet you don't even remember that or you weren't even born when that happened it's just a way for them to feel like that their nostalgia is still relevant and to to make sure that the other person doesn't negate their emotion towards that memory. It's fucking stupid, to be honest. But, uh, I mean, you're going to notice that in life. People are going to say, Oh, you weren't even born. Blah, blah, blah. Don't criticize the person for saying that. Just understand that they're trying to revel in nostalgia. Here's the thing, nostalgia isn't even voluntary. Sometimes you can be made to feel nostalgic by companies because they want you to buy their shit. For example, Coca-Cola and... Okay, so Coke and Pepsi. They're both the same product, but they have two completely different ways of marketing. And contrary to popular belief, Coke and Pepsi aren't rivals because they don't share the same market. They might be the same product, but 
you know, Pepsi fans are fans of Pepsi, Cola fans are fans of Coke. And here's the difference between the two. Coke have used basically the same logo for their entire existence, except sometimes they mix it up with the label Classic Coke. And that's just so you know that they haven't changed. The only change that they ever make is just to say, hey, listen, still the same stuff. Their mascots are a polar bear and Santa Claus. And they have the same ads every Christmas with Santa on a train and a train full of Coca-Cola and shit. Santa and polar bears, two things that don't change because their audience is mainly people who like things the way they remember them. And even having like Santa and a polar bear, two icons of Christmas, two Christmas icons sponsoring the Coke brand because Christmas is the epicenter of nostalgia. Coca-Cola want you to think about being a kid and tasting Coke and blah, 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 blah. Essentially, Coke's core fan base are people who don't like change. Pepsi, however, they change their logo all the time and they're constantly reinventing themselves. Their whole brand is kept alive by people who want something different. They don't want the same old brand that hasn't changed in a hundred years. They want Kylie Jenner selling the drink because she's the new celebrity. And there's no nostalgia with Pepsi whatsoever. But Coke, yes, absolutely. And I think that's why Coca-Cola is way more popular. Because it has the whole nostalgia angle. But also at the same time, Pepsi is only popular because they don't do that. And the whole reason I was thinking about all this nostalgia shit was because I was working in a hotel about a year ago and all the music came from this music system thing that was never updated. So the only music that you could put on, they were usually old songs. Not too old, but like they just hadn't been updated in like seven years. So I was doing the night shift working until 2am in the bar with this fucking arsehole called Richie who used to work the front desk at night. And I never knew what age Richie was, but I knew for sure that he was at least 10 years younger than he looked. I would generously put him around early 40s, but (laughs) he was probably about 30, you know? He couldn't read or speak properly, so I'm struggling through this night shift with a yank sitting at the bar all night talking to me about gun ownership and how you're not supposed to say the N-word and stuff like that. The only thing getting me through this conversation was the playlist because I had just discovered that they had a load of Bonobo tracks which was pretty relaxing electronic music and these were from like 2005 I think but I was enjoying this. Suddenly my repetitive electronic beats were obliterated by the bells of Enya. Now there's nothing wrong with Enya's music but that's the shit that you hear all day every day in this bar. Richie comes around the corner and he says, Enough of that electronic shite that you kids are listening to nowadays. Nothing wrong with a bit of Enya. And man, I can't stress how ignorant this guy was. I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with Enya. But yes, right now I want to listen to Bonobo. Or Bonobo, I don't know how you fucking say his name. Regardless, he was turning off my music in a response to this electronic sound that I was making. And he's trying to say, you know what, I'm going to put on real music. And the most frustrating part is, I told him that the song that I was listening to was like probably 20 years old at this stage. 
And he's like, ah, yeah, whatever. Listen to this. This song has guitars in it. That's real music. And I think he put on Bon Jovi or something. Even from listening to one episode of this show, you can probably tell why this is so infuriating to me. I was so furious on the verge of spewing a 20-minute rant about how electronic music is actually older than he is and how he clearly hasn't given it a chance. But I felt like it was easier just to tell him, yeah, well, I actually studied guitar in college for four years, so why don't you just shut the fuck up? I will fucking laser you with fucking alien eyes and explode your fucking head. It's not true, by the way. I I quit college after like four days over five months, but uh, just the fact that I'm listening to electronic music and he he has the gall to tell me that this is real music. Like, bitch... I have a podcast. <laughs> I didn't have a podcast, but... You know, it's like... I, I just hate when people feel a sense of superiority. Like, oh, this guy's young. He he probably doesn't even know what Enya is. I, however, am smart because I'm emotionally attached to music that came out 30 years ago. <sighs> I'm, I'm t- Okay, I'm not going to spend the whole episode talking about this. I am getting somewhere. There is a point to all this. Remember I was saying memory is selective? Well, that's a big factor when it comes to comparing eras of music. I was out with a friend of a friend a couple of weeks ago. This guy is a, a bit younger than me. It was it was Denim's friend, Denim Holdings from the last episode. His friend, he was like 20, um, which is fine. But uh, I'm not 20 and I don't know, this guy was in a very different point in life. Yeah, I don't know, we didn't have a lot to talk about. Let me just say that. And this guy is a smart guy, but he's around the wrong people. If you couldn't tell by Denim's general demeanor, he gets drunk a lot. That's that's what he does. That's how he would define himself. He's a guy who gets drunk. And this 20-year-old friend of him is exactly the same. By the way, I feel like I just shit in the fact that he's 20. That's not my point, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is that he was... immature for his age I suppose 20 year olds get a bad rap because you're generally pretty immature when you're 20 I was but this guy like really was you know what I mean so and just as a side note I hate when people define someone by their age like oh that guy's 20 he fucking doesn't look at this guy he doesn't know anything that's not what I'm trying to say basically this guy uh, was trying to say the same thing as your man Richie and he was saying how music was better back in the day and today's music doesn't mean anything and he was quoting one of Rihanna's latest songs and I think he mentioned Gangnam Style as well and they were his examples of like music is shit nowadays and his example of good music was Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones and now I think in in his mind he was thinking that I would agree with him because he thinks of me as like the guy who makes music videos and probably listens to some weird shit. I think he was excited to talk to someone who he could relate to in this way because all of his friends are just obsessed with drinking and taking cocaine and stuff. But he has he he's not really used to having a conversation like that. So his way of trying to relate to me was saying like, "Oh, you know what's good? Music from the 60s." And I think he was expecting me to just say like oh yeah yeah yeah, old music is better but this is exactly why i was annoyed at richie and just because it's music that maybe i like better like of course i like the rolling stones better than uh gangnam style 
and in a way yes Rolling Stones are more musically complex or whatever the argument being that X is better than Y because I like X better that's that's not an argument you know you see it all the time with Facebook posts that have Freddie Mercury and Taylor Swift side by side one of them says Bohemian Rhapsody one songwriter and then it quotes is this the real life or is this just fantasy and your immediate reaction is supposed to be like whoa that is deep man whoa music music and then the other one is like Taylor Swift and it has shake it off four songwriters and it quotes shake it off shake it off woohoo shake it off ooh music was better in the past but that that entire argument of music used to be better it's purely based off taking one song from today that's marketed to 12 year old girls and comparing it to a classic song from the past by one of the best bands in history you can make the exact same reverse argument by putting the most thoughtful lyrics by a current songwriter like say for example James Blake or something and then compare it to Queen's song Bicycle Song Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. It's really easy to just pick and choose what's regarded as good lyrics and bad lyrics and put them against each other. This is exactly what I'm talking about, memory being selective. This whole argument is completely selective. Um, Most times when someone says something was better in the past, it's selective. So here's some non-music examples of things people say that used to be better in the past. Everything... Everything is too politically correct nowadays. You used to be able to say whatever you want. Although I would love to agree with this because it's something that I feel, I do know that rationally that that's just not true. I mean, I also used to... I, I remember that they used to put age restrictions on albums and video games would always be banned like that game Manslaughter quick edit I meant to say Manhunt not Manslaughter Manhunt it was banned in Ireland because you could choke someone with a plastic bag censorship has always been there as for political correctness you can still say whatever you want the only problem is people are gonna fucking you know give out to you about it but I mean who really gives a shit if someone gives out to you The only difference is that in the past, you just didn't have immediate access to hundreds of people shouting at you. But that's just the way social media goes. Like, there's just nothing you can do about that. The problem isn't being able to say what you want to say, it's, you know, trying to manage having hundreds of people angry at you on the internet. That's a whole different argument, but anyway. Here's another thing people say. When I was a kid, we didn't have phones. We just agreed at a place and a time to meet, and we would be there. Phones are great. People just don't like seeing kids uh, with their heads buried on their phones on the street. And I totally agree. I fucking hate that. But phones are great. You cannot deny that the function of a phone is revolutionary and it improves our lives massively. If you really want to complain about something, complain about the the way people use it, not the actual product itself. Because I cannot think of something more annoying than telling someone to meet me at Cleary's Clock at 12pm and then waiting there for an hour because their mom made them clean the car or something. 
and they couldn't contact me to tell that I that they would be late. I I used to have a friend who used to pride herself on not having a phone. Do oh, I don't have a phone actually. Um yeah, I just don't need one. I just don't see the point. Cuz she wanted to be a fucking hipster and it was the most annoying thing in the world <sighs> having to ask her boyfriend like, hey, "Can you ask her if she can go out at this time?" and she was always late and the reason she thinks that not having a phone is great and why no one should have a phone is because it's not a problem for her. I will show up and she'll be late and I'll wait for an hour, but it doesn't fucking make a difference to her because she just rocks up whenever she wants. Oh, sorry, I don't have a phone. I didn't. I couldn't tell you that I was late. Fuck you. Just get that little brick so that you can tell me that you're going to be there on time. It's that simple. Don't. Enough of that. That's like a personal rant. Here's another one. The world was better without social media. In many ways, yes. Yes, it absolutely was. But again, I also feel like being able to contact pretty much anyone in the world at any time for free is a pretty good thing. And it's also good for seeing who your ex-girlfriend is fucking without bursting in on a wedding ceremony. Since social media, when is the last time someone went to the church just before they say, I do, bursting in the door and saying, I object! I object to this wedding! It doesn't happen anymore because you can just get them before they get married, see them on social media, and then burst into their back door of their house and tie up the husband and beat him to a pulp. Social media, it's great. <laughs> Hold on, I didn't make a point there. The world was better without social media. Um, no, not really, because, well, for a musician uh, and for getting guests on this podcast and shit, I, I have met so many musicians that I respect and appreciate and admire, and I can contact them just by sending them a message. I think that's amazing. And even just putting my stuff online, putting videos out, and just updating people with Instagram stories and shit. Just being able to like throw thoughts out there without actually having to put up a poster or putting an ad in the newspaper or organizing a gig just to tell someone that I think abortion is good or bad or however I feel about it. You know, like you can just put up an Instagram post and say, uh, what's something people say? I stand with refugees or something like that. You can just put up a post on Instagram, now everyone knows how you feel. You don't need to make a sign, you don't need to organize a protest. You get your little sense of virtue out there, you fulfill your need to tell people your political views, and you don't even have to fucking get up off the couch. Now, I made an argument for social media there, which has no relevance to my life whatsoever, but if you want to say something, if you want to broadcast it to people, you can do it in an instant. I do it with music and stuff and promotion. Other people do it with refugees or abortion. So all of this talk about things that were better in the past and stuff like that, it leads me on to our year of the month. Year of the month. So our year of the month is where every month I'll pick a year and we'll thank it for the gifts that it gave us. This month's year of the month is 1968. Now, when I was talking to the guy who said Rolling Stones were better than Rihanna, I was very glad he used that specific example of the Rolling Stones, because I have a go-to argument that he just walked straight into. I was totally prepared. 
So, Sympathy for the Devil is a rock classic from 1968 that is commonly referred to as an achievement for rock and roll and music as a whole. It defines a decade in a lot of ways. A decade that sparked musical enlightenment in terms of pushing boundaries lyrically and sonically. It's very easy to look back in the 60s and say, wow, what a time to be alive. I bet everyone was listening to the Rolling Stones in 1968. That's where you're not entirely correct. If you're going to compare eras, which you did, I saw you, I heard you, you've got to judge them fairly. That song was released in December 1968, and the Rolling Stones got a pretty wide reception as being devil worshippers as a response to their song Sympathy for the Devil. Their shows would be boycotted, and rumours were spread that people were dying at their concerts when they would play that song. Seriously. People believed that this song by the Rolling Stones was killing people, and you almost certainly wouldn't be allowed to have that record in your house back in a Catholic Irish 1968. So I'm talking to a guy who's saying that, you know, this music is better, that time was better. Well, that's... You probably wouldn't have been listening to that song back then. Whereas, in April of 1968, in the same year, this song was number five in the Irish singles charts. So thank you, 1968, for reminding us that those rose-tinted glasses are squeaky clean as ever. You think people heard yummy, yummy, yummy every day on the radio and said, hey, you know what? Music is good right now. Music has always been good and it's always been bad at the same time. That's the duality of music. And it depends where you look. Believe it or not, FM radio or Irish music charts are not the place to find where the best music is. You know, don't don't look at the charts. Don't look at the charts. I told you not to look there. Year of the month. I've been playing guitar for about 14 years now and recording music for about nine. I, I did guitar lessons for about a year, but otherwise from that, completely self-taught. Whether that's obvious or not, I don't know. Probably. I've been doing it passionately, you know, of my own accord, autodidactically. The PDF pocket hole music is by far the most focused and idiosyncratic work that I've ever made. I've recorded several albums under several different solo projects or with bands, and the overall recurring theme is that they're always experimental. They're always weird. And I have this song called Poppies in July. I took the lyrics of a poem by Sylvia Plath because I wanted to make a song out of the poems that were on the leaving cert so that I could quote the, the poems in an exam. So I made about 11 or 12 songs out of different poems from the leave insert and I could recite each poem back to front because I'd memorized the melodies from the songs. So I want to play a little clip from a very, very old recording of Poppies in July. So after releasing this, 
uh, a friend of a friend. Oh, maybe it was the junior cert, I think. But anyway, at what age was I? Probably like... Okay, I have no idea when this was recorded, but I do know I was like 16. So I was out with a friend of a friend after releasing this. And he said, oh man, I heard your tune, Poppies in July. <laughs> How stoned were you when you made that? And at this stage, I had been recording music for probably three or four years. And this was the first song that I ever put out into the world with my own vocals and no input from a band. I borrowed a bass guitar and I used my friend's drum kit. It took a lot of effort and I was very proud of it. So when he said, how stoned were you when you made that? I was like, uh, not at all. This whole project took like a week to put together and I only made it to help me study for exams. So in my opinion, if you ask a musician how stoned were you when you made that, I can only make two assumptions. Either you've never taken drugs or you've never made music. Probably both. Because if you've ever taken LSD, smoked a joint or eaten magic mushrooms, then you'll know that you can hardly even drink a glass of water properly. You, you can't do anything better when you're stoned. Never mind write, record and perform a rock song. <laughs> The album Helplessness Blues by Fleet Foxes is, in my opinion, one of the greatest albums of the decade. I used to listen to it front to back at least once a month for three years. There's a beautiful song in that album called The Shrine and Argument. It's a seven minute folk rock odyssey that begins in a tranquil shrine and ends in an aquatic concave of freeform jazz. So it's it's a great song. It's it's conceptual, uh, and it's music that's not made purely just for the enjoyment of listening to it. It it has also a narrative, and it also exists to progress what music can be. Not just a a nice sounding song, but something that stands for something. And it's it's a concept, you know. So that chaotic outro sounds like this. That's just a, a segment of the outro, but it's a good song. And at the time when it came out, uh, I was still living with my parents and occasionally I would have to be in the car with them. And being trapped in a metal box with them was not my idea of fun, but occasionally my mom would let me play a CD in the car. So I put in Helplessness, helplessness Blues, and when it came to the freeform jazz bit in that song, my parents were very suspicious that I was smoking weed. I was trying to explain how the music... Oh, and I was, by the way, but they didn't know that. I was trying to explain how the music's purpose here isn't for sonic pleasure, but it's serving a narrative. <laughs> and they said, shut up, you pretentious cunt. What, do you think you have a fucking podcast or something? Fuck you. It's using music as a plot device to represent a song devolving from tranquility into an argument. And she says, 
my mom says, Sounds to me like they were just rolling around on the floor, stoned off their heads. I was very frustrated at this. I tried to explain the actual reality of making a song. It involves a producer, a sound engineer, five or six performers. You have to actually write the song and over 10,000 euros worth of equipment to record it. And that's a very small estimation, 10,000 euro. Then it has to be mastered, artwork has to be made, and a video made for the song. And it gets sent to Sub Pop Records, and they print up hundreds of thousands of CDs, vinyls, digital copies for the album, merch, and this all gets dis- distributed worldwide through various different companies and distributors. And then they tour the album for two years. Ah, whatever. Sounds like they were stoned. All of this effort I can just gather from looking at the liner notes of the album. And yes, okay, I know I'm stepping on the eggshells of pretension here, but I understand for a lot of people, like, music is just a, you know, a fucking subsection of life. I take music seriously, and it's insulting for me for someone to say, ah, they were probably just stoned when all this effort goes into making it. And I'm, you know, obviously very serious about making music and shit. So it's it's about the context. You don't just play a song from a random point. Everyone knows you start at the start of a song and listen from the start to the finish. And this song is no different. This song is the same. You still do that for this song. And this song is made with the expectation that you'll listen to it from start to finish. And that's why it gradually prepares you for five minutes until it plunges into the argument section. I would understand if it was just simply chaotic noise, unstructured and meaningless for the whole song, but it's placed at the end of a very, you know, delicately constructed piece. Just because music isn't the way you want it to be doesn't mean that the music is wrong, or to simply just say that the musician was probably on drugs. You know, that's that's the perspective of someone who clearly hasn't done drugs. Like, hey, do you want to come over to my house and record a seven-minute folk rock odyssey and end it in a freeform jazz section? But having said all that, there is a reason why people ask, how stoned were you when you wrote that? And the reason is that music is much better when you're on drugs. As a listener, you can enjoy some terrible shit when you're on drugs. And that's why people take them. It makes everything sound great. But that's only when you are actually on the drugs. When you sober up, your judgement goes back to normal. If you record a song when you're high off your tits, you wake up the next day and say, okay, yeah, fuck, okay, that's bad, let's not release that. It's not like you get stoned one afternoon, record an entire album, release it, and then the next day you wake up and you're like, oh my god, did you release that freeform jazz song? Oh my god, I can't believe we made 10,000 copies of that. I mean, that's not to say there aren't artists who wear off their tits when they're recording music. Famously, Korn were constantly high on meth when they're recording their debut album. But that's an album that sounds better because they're on meth. You know, it's an angry album and they're on meth. But no one ever asks if Korn were high on drugs when they were recording that. And that's because the album isn't trippy. 
It's only when a song has loads of delay and experimental effects that people say, ah, yeah, 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 drugs. And I'm ranting about this because I've been plagued for years by people asking me how high I was when recording songs. And yeah, I used to pile on the crazy factor. I used to make things really fucking insane. And I suppose now I still do make them insane, but more from the perspective of lyrics and you know, the actual themes of the music. The actual sounds themselves aren't exactly trippy. And I think that's why people don't really ask me how high I was when I made music for PDF Pocket Hole. So to put this rant to a conclusion, I would like to give you an example of music that was made heavily under the influence of drugs and that doesn't sound good because of it. This is a song I made, I was probably like 14 and I, I, this was the first time I ever smoked weed and I drank, I was drunk as well. So it's called I Wanna Listen to Led Zeppelin and as you will be immediately able to tell, I was stoned off my titties and this is what happens when someone is stoned off their titties and tries to make music. Okay, so that's a really specific brand of awful, awful music. Just unlistenable. And by the way, if you're wondering what my artist... What what does this mean? What's the meaning behind this? I was just trying to play Black Dog by Led Zeppelin on guitar. And I was lying down with my head on the table just saying things into the microphone. But yeah, not only am I drunk and it's awful, but I'm just trying to play a really difficult song. And then I just transitioned into a, a metal breakdown somehow. So let this song be a lesson. <laughs> let this be a lesson that you don't make music on drugs, okay? You take drugs and listen to music. I'm trying to make the the length of these episodes somewhat consistent, so I'm going to leave it at that. So to tell you about some stuff, my album Sequence 2 is coming out on December 17th, And let me tell you, it sounds amazing on drugs. And I can confirm that I was not on drugs when I made it. So keep that in mind when you're listening to the trippy bits and you're wondering that to yourself. But I really, I highly recommend listening to the album on drugs or going to a live show after joint. It's the perfect balance between structure and insanity. It's not jarring, but it's tasty, you know? So ladies and gentle folk, that's my story for the week. Excuse me if my creative juices spilled out into an angry, shapeless puddle, but I'm just very passionate about music. Mm. 
and I would like to take credit for the sounds I make, rather than attributing it to a chemical. Oh, and something that I need to clarify about the album sequence too. It's only going to be available on Bandcamp and at live shows. I've made physical copies by hand with artwork and lyrics, and it's a really nice package and I'd like to, the music to exist that way. Spotify is just really disposable, and I'm too proud of this album to just throw it into the endless pit of the digital song catalogue. So I made this package that I would like people to look at while they listen to it. But if you're an international fan and you want a physical copy, there will be shipping available on Bandcamp. Can't leave you out to dry like that. Or even if you can't make it to a live show, you can get a copy online and I'll mail it out to you no matter where you live. So that's on Bandcamp. And actually, you know what? If you order a physical copy, I'll probably throw a few extra things in there. I don't know what, but I'm sure I can draw you a nice picture or something like that. Uh, and the physical copy comes with a link to download the thing online as well. So no worries there. And one more thing, speaking of trippy music. I directed a video for Gavin Da Vinci that came out the other week, but I never really said anything about it. It got a write-up in a hip-hop magazine, a district magazine, as a trippy video. And yeah, I suppose it is, but uh, that wasn't really the intention. But yeah, it's a bit of a trip. So if you search PDF Pocket Hole Gavin Da Vinci on YouTube, you'll find it. And fuck, I'm really proud of that video, and I kind of kick myself that I didn't really promote it as much. I was just really working on the album at the time. He gave me full creative control and I got Gavin to piss into a pint and drink it. So thank you very much for listening, folks. I'm going to close you out with the track Poppies in July that I recorded when I was like 16. This podcast is available on Spotify and Apple now, by the way. I finally wrestled the rights for my own show from the hands of a major corporation. Never give anyone access to your stuff, folks. So anyway, here's Poppies in July. See you in two weeks. Love you very much. Thank you.